you have differences in how people react to different opportunities, different circumstances, different challenges. And as a manager, it's really critical that you understand that and that you recognize what those differences are. Make those adjustments for individual minds, the AIM part of Rise AIM SOAR. And SOAR is, of course, strength. it strengthens operations and results. So it's really, you're, you're not doing this just because you're a good human. There's actually a business benefit to doing it. Welcome to Passion and Profits Without Burnout. I'm your host, Jacob Moore. I'm a speaker, coach, childhood suicide loss survivor, and filmmaker who left Hollywood to follow my heart of service. I've helped tens of thousands of people find the balance in their life between passion and profits. On this show, I'm going to teach you how to build a trauma-responsive, resilient, and impactful community and organization, all without burning out. Let's get started. Well, Mike, welcome back. Thanks for uh, joining me again to talk about this idea of how we can create a mentally healthy work environment. So in the last segment, you shared um, your strategies around running ideal stress environments. Now we're going to talk about adjusting for individual minds while in a supervisory role. Um, so can you share a little bit about how this fits into uh, the overall curriculum of Rise Aim Soar? Yeah. So Rise Aim Soar starts with running an ideal stress environment. And a key piece of that is aligning organizational goals, good performance management practices, collaborative problem solving. Uh, but even if you're as an organization doing all the right things, you have differences in how people react to different opportunities, different circumstances, different challenges. And as a manager, it's really critical that you understand that and that you recognize what those differences are. Make those adjustments uh, for individual minds, the AIM part of Rise AIM SOAR. And SOAR is, of course, strength. it strengthens operations and results. So it's really, you're, you're not doing this just because you're a good human. There's actually a business benefit to doing it. Uh, so that's really the sore part of it. Yeah. And and you also happen to be a good human, which is helpful. Um, Mike, I remember, <laughs> I remember um, during trainings that we've done together, you've shared a particular story. Um, and I, I believe that it's in um, this segment around um, adjusting for individual minds about an employee um, who was having a, a triggered response to the setup of her work environment. And that that story had yeah. always stuck out to me and how you adjusted for her, uh, I think was fantastic. Um, I think you know which story I'm talking about. Can you um, share the details around that? Yeah, so, you know, adjusting for individual minds, sometimes the adjustments are real simple. Uh, unbeknownst to me, a woman who worked at one of my groups uh, had been violently attacked at one point in her life. And I didn't realize this, but when the, what I called the cubicle police, but the office design people decided to reorient it, how the cubicles were placed in our company, they set them all up so that people entered each cubicle. So you, your desk faced the wall and people came at you from the back. And I noticed after a period of time that every time I walked into that cubicle, she just jumped and then just kind of sat frozen for a while and, you know, clearly took a while to get re-engaged. 
And, you know, I just after a while said, is there something about, you know, how I'm coming in here that's disorienting for you? And she just very clearly said, I don't do well when people surprise me from behind. Mm. It's not good for me. And I had to fight with the corporate police and let them know we can't, you know, this may be how you would like them all to be, but we have to make adjustments for people. Uh, we also know there are people who are very light sensitive. They need to be able to see sunlight. It really is depressing to be in a concrete building for periods of time. And had another employee who just needed to have, you know, the walls reduced so that there was more light reaching, mm. reaching her area. So I've got example after example from my work experience of small adjustments that we made that just made an enormous difference in that person's ability to be happy at work, to be productive at work, yeah. uh, to be able to focus on work and not to focus on what they were struggling with. Absolutely. And and those are really tangible and practical examples of that um, altering the physical environment. Can you talk right. a little bit about um, those things that maybe aren't so obvious, um, certain behavior patterns that you see, um, or when you know someone is having a challenging relationship, a dynamic is you know off at work, and and going through that process of adjusting for uh, individual minds. How do you approach that in in sort of a methodical way? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are two different ways. So one is if they have an ADA diagnosis, Americans with Disabilities Act diagnosis sure. that they have submitted, you have a work plan that you're working to from uh, a, working with HR in your legal department, and you make those adjustments. Most of the people who are struggling with a mental health challenge, half, more than half of those who have a diagnosable mental health condition have not been diagnosed. Right. And of the half that have been diagnosed, less than half of them are being treated. So most of the people that you would have to adjust for aren't going to have that diagnosis and treatment plan that you can operate from. So you right. have to be paying attention to how they're behaving and to what their needs are to their facial expressions and make adjustments based on that. On that. Uh, one example that's really common in a lot of organizations is the impact of social anxiety when somebody has to give a presentation. Because of the position I had in the company, uh, people in my department were sometimes presenting to senior management. Some of them were very comfortable and thrived on that opportunity. Others would go into a deep panic. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we had to set up a system for one particular person that's uh, standing, sticking out in my mind right now of, okay, do the presentation, first do it for one of your friends in the department, somebody you feel comfortable with. Then after you've done that and you've reworked it, do it for me. And then after you've done that, we're gonna get a group of us together from the department and you present to us. So by the time they're presenting it to senior management, it's the fourth time they presented, they're very comfortable with the material. Sure. They can make adjustments. Uh, you know, I can remember one particular presentation when I realized I needed to do that for the employee the next time where I'm like, ooh, that did not go well at all. They basically froze. Uh, and again, it goes back to understanding that when you're in that overstressed environment, you, you may know everything, mm -hmm. but if you can't access your memories because you've got a chemical barrier in your brain that's uh, preventing you from getting to them, you can't answer the questions. 
So we have to re lower your stress level enough that you can go into that organ into that presentation and really perform at your best. And it's really unfair as a manager to put an employee in a position to fail. Right. So, you know, and you may not necessarily know which employees you need to do that, but that kind of social anxiety is common in a lot of organizations. Absolutely. What you're describing sounds like it's a lot of effort. It requires a lot of patience and um, time as well. Uh, as someone, you know, who, you know, owns and operates a, a business, um, when I'm thinking through that process of, of like having someone present four times before they're actually, you know, on stage, like that's a, that's a huge time investment. How do you justify that? The justification is everything around that is more successful. If you, if you don't take the time to do that, that employee fails in that senior management uh, discussion. What do senior managers typically do when you bring an employee in front of them and they're not impressed? They tell you to get rid of them. Yeah. So what, then what do you do? You have, to, you have to lose a really high quality employee who does well. You have to go out and hire somebody new. You have to bring them in, train them. So, you know, having given up four hours to save yourself what might be hundreds of hours of additional work is a valuable and well worth uh, that time investment. Now, if it's not a good employee, you're probably not going to put them in front of senior management anyway. Absolutely. Uh, so you're only putting people in these positions who you have some value uh, placed around uh, them being there. Yeah, and and confidence in them as well. And I, I really appreciate that. Obviously, I'm I'm playing a little bit uh, you know, devil's advocate here, um, but when we look at the cost for um, hiring and employee turnover and onboarding, it's it's much more cost effective, significantly ten times over more cost effective to invest in an employee that is good and has great potential. Um, so that four-hour investment to get a really fantastic result in front of senior management, um, I think is um, certainly well worth the alternative potential alternative of losing that employee and having to find another one and go through the time lost um, and and that time you know and cost investment of onboarding a new employee. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you're as you were saying that, I was thinking of another employee whose challenge was getting overwhelmed if there was too much on on his plate. Sure. And so what I learned over time was that I had to give him his assignments in doses he could handle. And he was a great employee, turned out great work. But if I gave him 20 things to do, maybe one got done. If I gave him one or two, those one or two got done, then I'd give him the next one, those one or two. Now, did it place a burden on me to keep a list of all the things I wanted him to do? Sure. Yeah, it, it did. But I got way more work out of this person at a high quality than I ever would have gotten if I had just done the brain dump every time an idea came to my head and then made him sort out what the priority was and where that one fit in the 20 other things that were on his plate. Uh, so that kind of prioritization effort. Now, you could do it collaboratively where you say you keep the list, but then each day, let's just take two minutes to touch on what I really want you to do today. Uh, so there are other ways besides you keeping a separate list that you could do it. But 
these are things where when you've got good employees, and especially in a knowledge field, like, you know, I was working in a knowledge field where we had, it was a creative, it was the creative communications, the marketing communications, corporate mm-hmm. communications, but you had to under, have an understanding of chemistry, chemical engineering, the water industry, all the, mm-hmm. and a whole lot of background that literally takes years to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you lose somebody like that because you won't make that minor adjustment. You're going to pay the price for quite a long time. Absolutely. And that reminds me of what you were saying in you know previous segment when we were talking about uh, running ideal stress environments um, and and sharing the the goals and priorities, but making sure someone understands, hey, these are the top ones that I want you to focus on. Here's you know where right. your real value is as an employee, and then keeping them on track with those um, individual tasks. Um, that's something admittedly that um, I'm not great at. And um, I've been fortunate to find some um, fantastic individuals who can handle my brain dumps and handle my periods of you know, ideation. And, um, and, and that's certainly valuable. Um, but I, I think you're right on the money with being you know, a good manager. Um, it, it really comes down to understanding what that individual needs. And um, I, I certainly haven't always been sensitive to that. So so I appreciate that. Well, and the reality is out of, you know, I'm trying to think how many employees I've had report to me over the years. I mean, it's certainly more than a hundred. You know, out of that, there's maybe a couple who I needed to make that adjustment for. Uh, so many of them can handle those brain dumps. And so you're you're not making that adjustment with everybody. Sure. You know, there are people who can kind of sense where you're going and, and take that in. It's not like you have to completely revamp your management style for every for everybody to fit around the one or two. You just have to make some adjustments for that one or two. Absolutely. Mike, you mentioned ADA plans. Um, and obviously, if someone has, you know, a diagnosis and it falls under ADA, um, then you are legally obligated to make accommodations for them. For these other um, employees, and, and you mentioned um, the fact that around 50% of people have you know, undiagnosed or underdiagnosed um, mental health challenges and um, may not have something you know, on the books, how do you maintain the balance of not therapizing, therapizing someone, not um, getting into an area of um, diagnosing them or, um, you know, putting a specific condition on them, if they're not self-disclosing and they're not sharing that openly with you, like the example um, of the woman who you know told you that she was attacked and, and needed accommodation around that, what's the line and how do we balance that with employees who may be living with uh, a mental health challenge that they're not themselves aware of? Actually, I had... Uh, um couple of people who worked for me who didn't real did get diagnosed with bipolar disorder until years after they worked for me. And these were really high performing people. But I noticed over time that there was a pattern where they would churn out some amazing work for weeks, months at a time, and then just completely disconnect for a while. Mm-hmm. They were going through that manic depressive cycle. And part of what I realized I needed to do was when they were in that more manic uh, time frame was make them go home. Mm. 
you know, you, you can't be sitting here working till midnight and getting up at 6 a.m. You have to take care of yourself and just, you know, trying to minimize those waves. Now, I didn't diagnose them with bipolar disorder. I just knew, noticed a, a pattern of behavior. And there are training programs. I mean, this is something we talk about when we were do training. There are mental health first aid and many other programs that teach you to notice changes in behavior, mm-hmm. thoughts, feelings, uh, and, and use that to guide your decision. You don't have to understand the diagnosis. You just have to understand what works and what doesn't work for that employee. Um, and, and there are a whole bunch of diagnosed mental health conditions that impact the bottom line. I mean, we know depression is the number one cost issue for, for businesses. If you see an employee who's just struggling uh, and they've historically been a well-performing organization. Think of it like if you got an employee who's who's sick. And we had a woman who worked for for me who was absolutely a top performer who went through a battle with breast cancer. Mm. And during that time that she was battling with it, I didn't expect her to perform at the level she was going. Of course, going not. into that. Uh, you know, if you have somebody who has a heart attack, you don't expect them to come back to work and perform at that same high level. Well, mental health challenges are just like that. Mm-hmm. If they're a really good performer, you've got to give them time to recover and to heal and to get back on track and maybe to have access to resources and support uh, and to even be encouraged. You know, you take care of yourself because when they take care of themselves, they're better able to take care of other people. I know we both know from our personal experiences, when we're not taking care of ourselves, we are less capable of being good partners, good parents, good friends, because we don't don't have that capacity. Uh, So, you know, just, it's really about paying attention. Now, if you get a new employee in who, the first couple of months on the job, they're just not doing anything, you don't just go in and assume that this must be a depressive episode or whatever. You just decide that's a bad employee. Well, right. that's a fair estimate in that case. But if they've got a track record of performance and they go through a period of time when they're struggling, chances are there's something that they're struggling with that they don't know how to how to deal with in that moment. And it could be a mental health challenge. It could also be those, you know, the other piece that we talk about in the adjust for individual minds section of the the workshop is the adverse events that people experience, the life events that hit us. Um, And those have an effect as well. Yeah, absolutely. And maintaining that balance of, you know, getting to know an individual in a work appropriate way um, without becoming, you know, uh, a counselor um, is, you know, I think a delicate balance. Um, you mentioned with, you know, the example of employee um, that later was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, you you noticed some behavior patterns um, that, you know, you interpreted as being, you know, manic. Um, and, and I think it's important to, you know, sort of withhold our, you know, judgment or, or diagnosis there. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't enact boundaries, um, that you can't put in place, um, the necessary parameters to, you know, ensure the, the safeguard of, you know, that individual or the, the environment, 
um, and certainly, you know, the, the overall culture of an organization. So um, I think that's an important point. Yeah. And, and to your point, I, I never would have shared with that employee what I thought might be the diagnosis because that's not my job. Uh, and I certainly didn't share that around the organization. Uh, it was just something that because I pay attention in the field, I had more awareness of, but you don't have to have some background in mental health or your own personal experiences with it to notice those behavioral patterns. Uh, and that's really what we're, we're trying to pay attention to. Absolutely. So you're bringing awareness and noticing, you know, people's, you know, performance patterns, behavior patterns, um, looking for, you know, cues and signs like facial expressions or, you know, um, signs of stress, things of that nature. Once you've sort of identified that, hey, there's there's something here that we need to adjust for, then how do you go about collaborating with that individual? Um, what's your approach to bringing them into this process so that they have agency, so that they have a stake in this process as well? Yeah, I, I think the key is just to, to be as honest as you can without getting into that uh, medical discussion, just say there are times when you're really performing at a high level and other times when you're struggling. Is there something about the way the work is set up or how you're assigned work that you think is likely to work better for you? You know, for somebody, you know, for, you know, for example, one of the common uh, methods of making an adjustment an accommodation under ADA for bipolar disorder is to put individuals more on longer term projects hmm. where they can achieve more of the work in pieces when they're, when they're feeling their best versus having daily deadlines where, you know, ultimately if they've got daily deadlines, that's probably not going to be the most successful role for them. Mm -hmm. But it's really about asking them what kind of work environment they've succeeded at in the past uh, what they think is most likely to succeed. Is there something about the role or the structure, or maybe it's even the people around, maybe they're working with somebody who's just really toxic in the way they interact with them. Uh, and you could, sometimes you can, you can fix a problem by just saying, oh, you people just don't belong working together because you don't interact the right way. Sure. Uh, but it's about having that discussion without medicalizing it to your point. Yeah, absolutely. Gary V um, is a controversial business figure. Um, I I happen to like him um, despite his abrasive style, but uh, he's sort of coined the term kind candor. And that's something that sticks with me a lot as a leader, um, this approach of providing feedback or, you know, trying to, you know, adjust when we see behaviors that are um, un, unwanted or um, unhelpful in, in a work environment. Um, and and I think that's what you're describing, Mike, is this approach of, of kind candor. Yeah. We, we have to talk about something um, and, and address an issue straight on. However, um, doing so in a way that is um, really taking into account that um, that we require compassion as well. Yeah, and, and that that's so, if you don't have those discussions, you're just gonna continue to be annoyed by the behavior or things that aren't the way you wish they were. 
when you can have the discussion, you can solve a problem. If you don't have the discussion, you're never going to solve the problem. Yeah. Uh, so I like that. I like that term kind candor because that that's what we need. You know, we need to be relied on. I mean, people who are struggling still want to know that they, somebody relies on them. That's, we all have a need to have that purpose, yeah. uh, that hope, that sense of belonging. And when you, when you kind of ignore those discussions, you're basically saying you're not important enough for me to want you to be at your best. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Mike, as we wrap up here um, on this segment for adjusting for individual minds, um, what would be something that a manager or a leader could do right now today to start to make this culture shift in their organization and start to shift a relationship with an employee? Um, I know, you know, oftentimes I've felt like maybe things were so far gone um, that the relationship had deteriorated to a point that it was unsalvageable. Um, and, and you know, sort of um, what's the point of, of trying to go down this road? So um, what's someone, something that someone can do today to start taking that step um, to, to change this culture? You know, I think one of the things that I think all managers should do is just to study a little bit on what are the normal accommodations that people might make for various mental health diagnoses. Uh, and just to understand, you know, a lot of them are really simple things, you know, adjustable start times, alternating work from home, uh, you know, different workspace disclosures. So you have an idea of how easy it is to make many of these adjustments. Um, you don't have to become an expert in mental health. You just have to understand what are common things people need to know or that managers can do to create a better work environment for different types of people. And I know we use this in, uh, in, our, in our training, but even something, you know, I think a lot of people have seen the uh, Mentos being dropped into a Diet Coke bottle and, you know, they see how it explodes. Well, you can take a whole variety of different sodas and drop, drop a Mentos in and they react to them differently. Sure. And we have to recognize that uh, you can look at your people and think they should all be the same. They're just not. You know, we're all very different. And not only are we different in our core, but if we have, you know, adverse life events coming at us, um, you know, we've lost somebody, uh, we have a serious illness, we have to take care of parents or children differently. Even the loss of a pet, which most uh, most managers don't understand how devastating that can be to their employees. The, you know, those pets can be really crucial. Just giving them a little bit of time to grieve and a little bit of space to grieve gives them a chance to come back, you know, and be able to, to be engaged. Uh, so it's really about understanding in many cases, I would just take the time to research what are the simple things I can do to help different kinds of people be successful? Mike, that's a fantastic takeaway and something that I, th I think is really accessible. You know, just looking up, there, there's already playbooks out there for, you know, making an, a work environment ADA accessible. Um, and I'm not just talking about wheelchair ramps. Um, we're talking about all disabilities that um, people might be facing, um, but in, especially those invisible illnesses. So um, thank you, Mike, for that. Um, that's, that's really um, tangible and I think actionable for people.
Um, I'm looking forward to speaking with you more um, in our, our next segment around uh, this idea of achieving stronger operational results through compassion and um, really uh, bringing in um, these principles from RISE and AIM as well. So thank you, Mike. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Passion and Profits Without Burnout. I hope that you found some impactful takeaways. And if you did, I'd love to hear from you. Share a screenshot on your IG story, tag me, or send me a quick message. This show is for you, so any feedback is welcomed. Hey, and make sure you're also subscribed to the show so you don't miss any of our new episodes. And if you could, take a few minutes to leave me a five-star review. That'd be greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening, and be well.